Go ahead, Connie. Okay. Heavenly Father, we come to you today once again in awe of your provision for us, your greatness, your goodness, your sovereignty, your love, and so many other characteristics or perfections, as Ray calls them, that um, we are unable to name. We thank you that we have the opportunity to get to know you now and throughout eternity. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts to your word today. Uh, may your spirit reign in Ray's teaching, uh, that we would all walk away from today's class, not only more learned, but desiring to put into action what your word calls us to do. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Before we get into the uh, passage, you might turn to two of them, uh, the Romans 12 and Ephesians 4. I'm going to, since we're doing uh, kind of an extra time on gifts, look a little bit at Ephesians. This morning we're going to continue in our study of the book of Romans chapter 12. I only intended to do two sessions on the gifts. I know most of you are somewhat familiar with them. Maybe some of the new people are not. I didn't get any feedback, but as it turned out, we're going to end up with three anyway, at least. Planning on getting through it today, and then we'll pick up verse 9 next next week, Lord willing. So if you would uh, turn to chapter 12, we're going to look at verses 6 through 8, where we have a description of specific gifts. Last time I introduced our discussion by giving you a little bit of a background on a church that I was a part of at its initial founding. And when you uh, start anew, you can start fresh and you can kind of set some parameters around the church that are very, very different from an established church. If you try to change things too rapidly in an established church, you'll end up splitting it. So We were free to do lots of new and innovative things, and one of the things I tried to introduce was the concept that we all minister together, and we all uh, work together, and all minister within their spiritual gifts. And for the first, oh, I don't know, a couple of years or so, I think we had 100% participation in spiritual gifts where virtually everybody except young children, basically, were functioning in their gift. So I'd like to review not only a little bit of spiritual gifts to get us into it, and then we'll look at the specific gifts, and I'll use probably examples, because some of them were very dramatic, particularly some of the people that didn't have as much experience as others and discovered their gift, Uh, kind of a neat story on some of them. So I use some of them as examples of the ones that we're going to look at today. So in Romans chapter 12, we are dealing with a book that was written to believers in the city of Rome. They would have, at the writing, when Paul wrote this, this structure, the Colosseum, which is an engineering feat in itself, was under construction and was completed after he had died and after the book of Romans had been written. But it has, has a history. Go ahead a question about this picture. It looks like either a portion of this has been sandblasted clean or um, it was built at a different time. No, I think the first is probably the case. 
structures like this go through different renovations. And I think what you've observed is probably accurate, probably cleansing of one part and the remnants of age on the other parts. But okay, thanks. No problem. Our group was able to visit, and we went inside and had a nice tour of it. And you can admire the engineering of it. But historically, in Rome, this was a place where spectacles took place, athletic contests. But also, one of them was the martyrdom of some believers. So, real people lived in time in the city of Rome. And Paul is writing to believers. I stress that. Even though he deals with the unbeliever, he's doing it more descriptive so that we as believers understand the nature of mankind so that when we share the gospel, we uh, have insight into what our nature, our fallen nature is like and the necessity of uh, encouraging and helping people understand who they are, otherwise they don't see their need for the provision of God's righteousness, chapters 1 through 8, which is God's justification. Paul uses theological terms throughout because he's writing to an audience that would be familiar not only from the culture, but the analogies that he's drawing in the spiritual realm. So 1 through 8, provision of that righteousness and the issue in the first century Not so much in our culture, but there was a large contingent throughout the world of Jewish people, and they were God's people. They were the people that God had called unto himself, and that people existed, and they still thought of themselves as God's people, although they rejected the Messiah. So Paul is vindicating the righteousness of God in setting aside his people on a temporary basis. And he gives a lot of detail concerning that, chapters 9 through 11. So I call that the vindication of God's righteousness. God is perfectly righteous in setting them aside, opening a door, a new way for Gentiles to come in to the family of God. So that's more of the doctrinal, you might say, or the teaching portion of the book. And once you receive this righteousness, whether Jew or Gentile, Paul is giving us a picture of what it looks like in real life experience. We call that application. So 12 through 15, the middle of 15, and then there's a conclusion after that. I call it the application of God's righteousness. And obviously everything begins with that relationship with God. How does it look in relationship to God in a Jewish context where there were sacrifices still going on when the writing of the Book of Romans was written before the destruction of the temple, the imagery of a sacrifice that was brought to God as an expression of one's life. In other words, that sacrifice was a substitute in the Jewish system of one giving one's life to God. And this is what God specified But in Romans 12, 1 and 2, what Christianity looks like in our relationship to God is giving our whole life as a living and a separate or holy sacrifice. That is what is acceptable in the eyes of God. In other words, a total dedication involving two aspects, a setting aside of what the world calls us to do 
not conforming to the world, not living in the same lifestyle, same ways. So for a new believer, it takes time to pull loose. For the old, older, more mature believer, it's a matter of constantly battling the temptations that are brought on before us. But it also includes an internal, so there's an external aspect and an internal aspect that deals with a transformation that is unseen that works itself out in living. And when it works itself out, people can see the will of God, which is perfect. That's in in verse 2. And that's the starting point for everything else. Otherwise, nothing else will work in the Christian life. But if you have a right relationship with the Lord, then that will spill over and you'll have a right relationship within the church. And what does that relationship look like when it's worked out? And Paul doesn't talk about attendance, programs, staff, leadership, even the people specifically or as a congregation, but he talks about how do we fit in to the body of Christ and what? how do we function within it? And that function is, he starts three through eight, functioning in our gifts. So they are essential in the functioning of the church and gives us a reason why churches today are not as strong as they could be because people are not functioning in the New Testament way that God designed. And that spills over into society as well. So he shows us what does it look like when we live it out in relationship to the culture, government particularly, but other aspects as well. Gives us a special case of Christian liberty, 14 through the middle of chapter 15. So that's where we are in our study in the book of Romans, the application to God and the application in relationship to the church. It involves the exercise of spiritual gifts. So we've spent two sessions on that. The encouragement for humility. We have to have an accurate assessment of who we are both in terms of not having too high an opinion, but also having an accurate view of who we are in terms of knowing the positive aspects as well. So encouragement to humility all the way through verse 5 and that relationship that we have with one another. And now we're looking at the exercise of gifts and we're encouraged to exercise them in verse 6. And we have a long sentence that runs all the way from 6 through 8. We looked at the first part of verse 6. I'm just reviewing here. And I mentioned that uh, throughout this, we don't have a verb. We don't have a single verb. So the translators have to insert verbal ideas into the text to, to get across the idea that Paul is communicating. So it's a a string, particularly once you get into the end of 6 and 7 and 8, a string primarily of nouns and participles with no verb, well, a participle is a verbal idea, but with no finite verbs. But I think the translators do a good job of conveying it, so we don't need to get into the details of that. So since we have, and I've been stressing we, all of us, every single one of us, that's the stress of all of these verses. You see the, the, the little phrase here, we conveying all of us, 
The we, we have uh, gifts that differ, the stress on uh, all of us, each of us, Every believer has a gift. Most people in the church today are unaware of the whole concept of gifts, much less knowing what their particular place is. So for some, this is a a new concept. But I think for most of you that have been around a while, this is not a new concept. And in that, so let's take a look. We talked about last time, charisma is the word that Paul uses here. And you you notice that it has to do with grace. So these are given on the basis of grace. They're also spirituals. You might translate pneumatikas, spirituals, or relating to the spirit realm, relating to the Holy Spirit. And we have a list in chapter 12 of gifts. We won't get into them other than referring to some of them. So they are given on the basis of grace, but they're also spiritual. They're not natural, but also charisma is in chapter 12. And when we come to Hebrews, we have a new word that uh, we won't get into. Ephesians 4, I'd like to look at it, where Paul uses the word charis. He uses doma as well, but he uses charis in verse 7. The word that is translated grace virtually everywhere else, but in that context, he calls spiritual gifts grace, graces, if you would, pluralizing the the English. Again, related to the concept of unmerited favor. We don't deserve them, but we are given them because God desires us to function and he gives us everything that we need to be able to function in the body of Christ. Then we have charisma again in the fourth passage that deals with spiritual gifts, 1 Peter 4, 4, 10. We've seen in the first part of 3 through 5, they're given with an attitude. We should have an attitude of humility. They're given by grace, and they're given in the context of the body as a unified whole. We are parts of a unit and they're given in diversity. We said last time they're not natural. We learned that from uh, pneumaticas and other descriptions and words in the four passages. So we're not born with them naturally. They're not offices. Some confuse some of the gifts with offices. They're not, but they're spiritual. They're grace. They're given by grace. They're gracious. They vary from person to person, and I mentioned last time we don't probably have specific, what's the word, exhaustive lists. We have more what we might describe as samples of spiritual gifts. They're different. We have some that are common, like uh, the one of prophecy. That one occurs in three of the passages, but they vary. And I see them as potentially any individual may have any combination. We could envision an infinite number of possibilities in terms of degrees of, of giftedness, but everyone has at least one and probably one prominent gift, so they vary. And we also talked about how they all can be abused, not just some of those that uh, some would... Uh, describe as temporary or gifts that no longer exist. 
So every gift can be abused. The gift of apostleship, there were false apostles in the first century, false teachers, false uh, everything that are specifically noted in the first century. I gave you a simple definition. There's supernatural enablements, supernatural enablement for serving the Lord. They're by grace, obviously. Each one of us has them. And this is the means by which we function in the body of Christ. And I think they're designed that we, in fact, do function. And according to the grace, they, they differ according to the grace given to each, to, to us. There's the we again, the us, every believer. And again, the stress on grace. Some are given uh, different measures, you might say according to the the grace, but everyone has a measure according to what God has designed. It all fits just like the human body. Some parts are used more often and others are hidden and others are more prominent. Uh, So also God has been pleased to, to give gifts according to that grace. And we talked about these four lists. First Peter, you, you don't have specific gifts listed. We have two categories. Some are more speaking, you might say. That's the category that Peter gives us. They're more visible, more external. And there are some that are more serving, less visible, less noticeable, not any less important. They're all equally important in the eyes of God. So it's not that some are superior and some are inferior. It's more God has fitted it such that he has designed how each part works, how each member works. And according to his sovereign plan, he has distributed gifts. In fact, in Ephesians 4, the emphasis of the giver of gifts is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, you might turn to Ephesians 4 because I want to look at these to kind of introduce the gifts that we have because I see them as more foundational gifts. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on them, but I want to use them more uh, introductory. So while you're doing that, the third group are in 1 Corinthians. The emphasis of 1 Corinthians, we have three chapters, 12 through 14, And what Paul is doing is correcting the misuse of gifts at the city and church in in Corinth. And then chapter 12 of the book of Romans, where we're at, I think what Paul is giving us is the more typical, the more major gifts that you can observe in virtually everybody. And I would see all of the gifts there as manifested today. And one of the arguments that I will use is the fact that prophecy is listed in this group. It seemed to have been a gift that was misused at Corinth. It's also mentioned in the foundational gifts. Some see it as a temporary gift that no longer functions today, but uh, I'm going to make some comments concerning that as well. So what I see chapter 12 is, in other words, Paul is not specifically giving us everything about spiritual gifts. He's giving us the essentials and how important they are in the outworking of the functioning of a church. And 
I think he gives us what I would describe as either the major or you could use the word typical gifts that you can observe as well. And again, they're not comprehensive. Chapter 12 of Romans is not comprehensive. Chapter 12 through 14 is not comprehensive. Ephesians 4 is not comprehensive. Neither is 1 Peter 4, which only gives two categories. And they, they differ because they each author, I think, has a different emphasis. I think in Paul, in Ephesians 4, he's given us foundational gifts. In Corinthians, misuse of gifts. And chapter 12, uh, typical or major gifts. They're not comprehensive. And I've already mentioned they may come throughout the church age in an infinite number of combinations. So the gift that any one of you may have is totally unique. The uh, makeup of gifts, you need to view it as totally unique. And God has put you in the body of Christ to function not only in your uniqueness, but you cannot be compared to anyone else. Now, you may have some similarities. You may have a gift that may be similar to someone else. You may be an exhorter, whereas somebody else has the gift of exhortation. But in their combination, they may be more comforters. You may be more overt in your exhortation in terms of maybe more drawing out maybe negative aspects that need to be drawn out in uh, the body of Christ. Another one may have the same gift, but it may express itself in a slightly different way. So everyone is unique. We all have an infinite combination. I'm going to introduce one that's not on the list, just to kind of stress that later on. And then we stressed, we've been stressing, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. Now, the translators insert the word is with the infinitive to exercise in order to encourage the, the utilizations, and you can view it as an exhortation or an encouragement to exercise gifts, and I think this is God's will for every single genuine believer, everyone that's born again, is to exercise spiritual gifts. So that's kind of the takeaway of everything that we've been talking about concerning gifts, we each should be constantly thinking in terms of how am I using my gift today, not just Sunday morning. In fact, many of the gifts, I think, are better and more appropriately utilized throughout the week in uh, personal contact with one another. We'll see some of them on the list. So that was the emphasis there. So we have not only to exercise them in humility, by grace, in unity, with diversity, the uniqueness of each of the gifts, but the emphasis of each believer. And we see this concept, if you're in Ephesians 4, would uh, someone read verse 7? Got it. Go ahead, Steve. By the way, somebody else look up 1 Corinthians 12 while Steve is reading 4-7. We've already looked or referred to 4-7, so let's read it. Notice not only the word grace that I mentioned, it refers essentially in the context of spiritual gifts. Go ahead, Steve. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Okay. Now, he uses two words for gift there. 
He uses charis, but notice in the context of doma, the other word, I should have listed it on our slide there. But they're, they're given by grace, and he calls and describes gifts by grace. But what else do you notice there? Each to each one. Same emphasis as what we have in Romans. Now, we won't turn to 1 Peter 4.10, but again, the emphasis there is each one. Does somebody have 1 Corinthians 12? Verse. 6 and 7. 12, 6 and 7. I'll go for it. Go ahead. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. All persons. Go ahead. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Okay. To each one. Their manifestations of the Spirit. In other words, this is the way that people can see the working of the Holy Spirit in the believer as they function in the body of Christ. But the emphasis that I'm drawing out there is to each one. And then we see in Romans 12, 6, again, each of us stressing the idea everyone not only has at least one, but God has designed that we function. This is how we relate to one another through spiritual gifts. Not the only way, but this is the uh, prominent way. And to kind of summarize some of the applications, you could say, that we could draw from all of the passages up to this point, and now we'll get into a description of them individually. It begins with a commitment to God. Everything flows from that If we have put ourselves on that altar and are growing in that relationship, that is the source of power. That's the source of leading, displaying God's will. If we don't have that right, then the exercise of spiritual gifts will be an abuse of those gifts. So in a right relationship to God, it'll spill over in our relationship to other believers. It starts with the right attitude. So we have to have the right commitment, the right attitude, the attitude of having an accurate or humble assessment. Humility is not putting ourselves down. Humility is looking at ourselves in an accurate, realistic view from God's perspective. And when we see that, we see that we have a a relationship to the rest of the body, to to one another, And in that relationship, we have a vital function and a vital place. So you have to have a right commitment, a right attitude, a right relationship with one another. Now, he'll expand upon the one another's in the latter part of chapter 12, but that all leads to a right ministry. And what is the ministry that God has designed for you, for each of us? That ministry is related to the functioning of one's gift. And uh, that's the uh, summary of what we looked at in Romans 12. Now, Ephesians 4 has a lot of similarities. I'm going to use a similar chart here. This is from Ephesians 4. We already saw verse 7. Steve read it. But if you read verses 8 and 9, it's going to describe in there that the giver is Christ himself. Now, 
we have the whole Trinity involved. God is in view. We saw that, in fact, Denise read that in 1 Corinthians 12, but we see God involved in the whole process. But by Christ, the ascended Christ, the emphasis of Ephesians 4, 8, and 9, it's a little difficult to understand, but notice it's, therefore it says, and he's quoting here, I'm not going to get into the detail there, but he's quoting essentially Psalm 68, expanding upon Christ's gift of verse 7. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive host of captives and gave gifts to men. Now, it's kind of difficult. You have to develop a little bit of the context of the psalm to understand all that he's saying there. But the essence of what he's saying is the ascended Christ from the right hand of the Father distributes gifts. And then he kind of expands that in verse 9. I don't want to get into that. 9 and 10, actually. He who descended is himself also he who ascended. So he's expanding the idea of the, the Christ who is ascended. And they're given through the Holy Spirit. That is the emphasis of the First Corinthians passage, but you see elements of it here as well. And they're also by grace, we saw that in 7, to each believer, also in verse 7, And if you read the rest of Ephesians 4, it's for the edification. We have a purpose for the edification of the body that ultimately is for God's glory. And you can see some of that in uh, verses 11 through 16 of the Ephesians passage. But I want you to notice a couple of other things here. If you skip to verse 11, would somebody read verse 11? We have, this is a list that uh, Paul utilizes in Ephesians 4. And in this context, and based on what he's going to say in the following, I think we can view these as what I would describe as foundational gifts. Who wants to read verse 11? And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. Okay, 11 and 12. And I think they do go together. In fact, it's a long sentence here. But verse 11, he lists foundational gifts. And I'm not going to go into detail describing them. I want to get to the Romans passage, but I do want to mention a few things concerning. I mentioned last time that I don't think, well, I don't have the same cessationist view as many in our circles. I would say that most of the believers in our circle, maybe not amongst our group specifically, are what would be described as cessationists. And what we mean by that is that some of the gifts have ceased to be given and ceased in the first century, and one of them would be the gift of apostleship. Now, if you do a word study and study all of the usages in the New Testament of the word for apostle and even the related word, you're going to see that it's used in four different ways. First, it's used of the 12, and they are unique. There's only 12 apostles. Now, one of them needed to be replaced, Acts chapter 1, because God has a plan in the future for the 12. They are unique. There's not going to be another one added so in that, well, that's the next category. 
I don't think Paul is one of those 12. I think Matthias, the one in Acts chapter 1, it fills that uh, is the replacement for Judas. The second category is people like Paul, who is an apostle, clearly, but you have a few others that are named. Uh, Barnabas, uh, there's uh, about two others. can't remember all their names. And these are different from the 12, but I would say they have a similar function, and God called other apostles as well. Now, the reason I see the 12 as unique is because of a couple of passages that seem to indicate that God has a plan for them in the millennial kingdom. Uh, Matthew, what is it, nineteen twenty-eight? if you want to jot that one down. So the second usage is these others clearly that are mentioned in the New Testament, like Paul and Barnabas and a couple of others. And I think thirdly, there's the gift of apostleship. And that's what's in view in the Ephesians passage. It's a spiritual gift. Now, I think the 12 had the gift. Paul had the gift. Barnabas had the gift and some of the others. But there's others that are not named that I think had the gift. And I summarize the essence of it. These are the ones that planted churches. Those that went out in the first century planting churches. This is what Paul did, obviously. This is what the 12 did. But there are others. Uh, Acts chapter, what is it, uh, 8? where we have the church beginning to branch out, Judea and Samaria, and churches being planted, and then Paul later on throughout the known world. These are church planters. So I think the heart and the essence of the gift of apostleship is to plant churches. So the question I ask, are churches planted today? Well, I mentioned one within you know, close proximity of, of Albuquerque. I don't know that anyone had that gift particularly, but I think God calls people. I think a lot of missionaries have that gift. So I see the gift as not ceasing, but it operates differently. Now, the 12 are unique. Paul was unique. Everyone is unique. But I think the gift can go on. The first use, this, the fourth usage of the word apostle is in the context of false apostles. So those are the four usages. So I would see that gift continuing and in a similar way, I think the some of the other gifts, for example, the, the gift of prophet, this would be another one that some of the cessationists say no longer is utilized. Well, I would say some aspects of it no longer are utilized today. And again, we're going to talk some more about this, but uh, it's in the list at Ephesus. So let me hold off till we get to Romans. But the church is founded on the apostles and the prophets. Now, that is a unique function of those of the first century in the overall foundation of the church. The church was founded once and for all. Now, individual churches throughout church history have different times of founding. And I think people with gifts with the ability to do that, I think, have uh, existed throughout the church age, including people with prophetic gifts. Now, when we talk about a prophet, we'll talk some more about uh, some other limitations as well. Evangelists, I don't think anyone uh, doubts that there are evangelists today. Special gift, the ability to lead people to Christ, that one is not listed and obviously, in the founding of the first century church, there was a great need for people to lead people to Christ. 
This was a, a gift that I think was given in greater abundance than perhaps any other period of time in church history. But uh, I think people have that gift today as well. These are foundational. And then now I'm separating. Some people join it with the other one, shepherds or pastor. And by the way, the only place in the New Testament where this gift is identified is in this foundational context, along with the teaching gift. And I think there's a pastor-teacher gift And uh, obviously, this one is a prominent gift that is very common today as well. Now, also by way of introduction, and to also illustrate a little bit of this idea of everyone having the gifts, I want to mention that God, I believe, can give every single one of the gifts to both male and female, including the gift of pastor-teacher. Now, there's limitations where that gift can be utilized in terms of male and female. But I think, in fact, I mentioned the church that I was involved in, that church, I think, had more female pastors in the biblical sense. They had the gift of shepherding. They shepherded children. They shepherded other women. In fact, their gift was more prominent than some of the men that uh, I think also had the gift. And in fact, I think women are more inclined to be shepherds than men are because they have those nurturing gifts that God gives them. And they are nurturers. They are shepherds. In fact, some of the women that I have in mind, there were two of them that had, I think, that very clearly the gift of shepherding. They, they knew their place as well. They did not step outside the bounds that Scripture has set. But I use them as an example to sometimes we think, well, a woman could never have the gift of pastor-teacher. Well, I think even in our group, I don't want to embarrass her, but I think Katie is displaying this gift. I've already embarrassed her once, so I'm going to embarrass her again. <laughs> uh, but I think she clearly... I think she's a teacher, and she clearly is a shepherd, and right now she has a flock of five little boys, but she shepherds women as well. And you might even say, in some ways, she has a shepherding ministry to Mike. I think Mike would recognize that without overstepping the bounds of the roles that God has assigned to her. So I only say that to kind of bring out the concept that don't limit the possibility of how God may equip you. Now, he limits the usage of some of the gifts, particularly pastor-teacher and the whole shepherding gift. 1 Timothy chapter 2, there's some limitations in terms of functioning, but not in terms of giftedness. And I think there's a distinction in the two. So that's the only thing I wanted to bring out from that, and that leads us to the passage that we're going to look at in the Romans, if prophecy, and notice he he gives a string here, and the string of gifts, in other words, if you have the gift of prophecy, the encouragement here, use it, just do it, if you will. If prophecy, according to the proportion of faith, in other words, According to what God has given you in terms of the 
the, the trust in him, the faith, the utilization, do it. Prophesy. And because it's in this list, I think God still gives that gift, but not in the, the sense of new revelation. I think that aspect of the gift of prophecy ceased in the first century. When the canon of scripture was completed, that was the extent of the revelation that God desired to have today. And uh, I don't think that there is the, the giving of new revelation. I think the gift can be manifested in, uh, in a, a way. And, and by the way, you could do an extensive study on the Greek word here. It is used very, very commonly in the Old Testament, hundreds of times, both the noun, we have the noun form here, propheteia, but also a verbal form to prophesy. So if you wanted to do a word study, you'd have to go into the Old Testament. And I think we have insight in terms of this gift in the Old Testament, but I think the essence of the gift of prophecy is to speak God's revelation to, to the New Testament prophets before the canonization of scripture. They spoke original and new revelation, the New Testament, essentially. And I think once the canon was uh, established, and I think it was established early, there was no longer a need to speak new revelation because the, the scriptures were completed. But I think the giftedness continued in the sense of now they're the ones that draw attention to the revelation. They're the ones that proclaim it. And if you look at the Old Testament prophets, I think you have some, uh, some patterns. And I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but they were the ones that proclaimed God's word. And sometimes it was not original. Oftentimes it was uh, God's word in terms of the law. They would quote and proclaim the law that existed in uh, later time in Israel's history. They also had the function of anointing and, and judging kings. Uh, David was anointed by a prophet, so also even uh, Saul. They were anointed by, by prophets, even Jesus in a, in a sense uh, he was baptized by John the Baptist and fulfilled, I think, something of, uh, of, of an example in the first century. Uh, they are also the ones that wrote scripture. These are the ones that had the revelation and the recording of scripture. Another thing that the Old Testament prophets did that we don't see in the New Testament, they enforced the covenants. In fact, these latter things relate to Israel and the prophets of Israel. They showed God's faithfulness in history, in what they revealed, and what they brought out from the law. They were like God's prosecuting attorneys in that they revealed where Israel failed to live up to the law. And uh, remember the covenants... Go ahead, David. Uh, I was just saying, um, does this comport with... Acts 2.17, then, uh, and we're talking about prophecy in the last days where it says, I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh and sons and daughters shall prophesy. Then is that tie in, basically saying the gift, this gift at that time is for everyone. 
Well, I think the specific Joel passage that is quoted by Peter there is looking at the millennial kingdom. I think it's looking forward. Not everything in that quotation is applicable to what was taking place on the day of Pentecost. I think what Peter is drawing out is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that they were experiencing on the day of Pentecost. But clearly, some of the physical phenomenon did not take place on the day of Pentecost. Yeah, I'm saying that there is a conflict. I'm saying that that seemed like an, an addition to me. Um, ex- the explain. end of the day, the last days, talking about, like you said, uh, millennial kingdom. Yeah, that's a usage of the last days, similar to the writer of Hebrews, where he sees the last days beginning with the messianic age, the beginning of Messiah. And uh, the last days when Messiah came, the kingdom would be established. So in a sense, the last days began with the coming of the Messiah and the early church. But obviously, there's an interim period of time before the the, uh, establishment of the kingdom at the second coming. And I think what the Joel passage refers to looks forward to a phenomenon of the millennial kingdom. So uh, there's a future role that will be much like the Old Testament prophetic role in the millennial kingdom. Mike, did you have a comment or Katie, one or the other? Yeah. So um, if, if this gift is um, something that's current today, would you say then for an example, like a real life example, somebody who focuses a lot of their ministry and teaching on eschatology and um, kind of relating things to world events, the setting up of um, what is to come, that kind of stuff. Is that is that more how this role is I, played out right now? Now, from the perspective that I'm giving, I, w- I would agree with what you said, but I would not limit it to people that bring out eschatology. I think it's general. Okay. If you see the prophets of the Old Testament, they utilize, they proclaimed God's word. And God's word at that time were, was the law. And they expounded and proclaimed. And, and I think the, the role of the prophet was to convict of sin. So I think those that are very, today, those that are very sensitive to sin, they can utilize the scriptures to motivate to bring out and expose sin, and they call people to repentance. They call people to walk according to God's word and God's will. So I think those, I think some preachers are uh, are gifted in that way. And it's not just those that uh, proclaim eschatological scriptures, but I think in a more broad way. I think they're more sensitive to sin, and they can expose it and call people to repentance. I think that's the main function. Well, anyway, okay, thank you. Does that make sense? I think oh, so. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, let's see, who's that? Bill. Bill? Go ahead, um, Bill. The, the, uh, this, is, this gift is very interesting, and in it's the only one listed in proportion uh, to the faith. And, and uh, the prophets I have known have struggled with seeing what should be and struggling with the fact that it was not. And I think that's why faith is so important for the gift of prophecy, because you have to be willing 
and able and and focused on trusting God to bring about what he's going to do. Right. Yeah. And I think they deal with some of those sensitive issues. When you're dealing with people and they're in sin and you're calling attention to that, that's not an easy thing to do. And, you know, it requires, you know, I've got to trust God. This this person may lash out at me, but I've got to trust God in this is what he wants me to say in confronting sin. And I think that's the one of the main roles of a prophet. Any other comments on prophecy? We could spend an hour on it, but I, I'm just trying to bring out the main emphasis of some of these. If service, get after it. If service in his serving, in other words, serve. If you have that gift, do it. Don't hide it. Don't uh, be shy. Uh, if service, uh, find a place. And by the way, uh, we could spend an hour looking at this word. This is the word that is related to deacons. This is the word in a broad sense is related to any area of service. Let me look at my word study here real quick to bring out. uh, It can be used in virtually any context. In fact, would somebody look up Acts chapter 6? Let's spend a little time on this. I think... Personally, the majority of people in the body of Christ have the gift of service, and I'll illustrate that in a moment. In fact, if you're looking, the counsel I will give to a person that does not have an idea what gift they may have, I encourage them, just get involved in serving. In other words, if you find an an opportunity, an occasion to serve, serve. And I think in that context, you will learn rather quickly, this is not my gift. (laughs) Uh, But you might find out this is my gift. I think the majority of believers have the gift of service and probably don't even know it. But God will also guide in uh, as you step out in faith, just as the prophet, to give you the opportunity where your gift does come to the surface. So if service in serving. Somebody have Acts chapter 6? I do. Go ahead. What do you want me to read? Read verse 1. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a murmuring against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Okay, the daily distribution, New American Standard says the daily serving of food. It's the same word that we have here, service. Now, that's what we generally think of when it comes to service. In other words, serving food, serving behind the scenes, you know, all those gifts that are required. But skip down, Connie, and read verse 4, because we have the same word here, and it applies to the apostles. And notice what it says. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The word ministry there is the same identical word, the service of the word. So it is the devotion to the, in this context, the teaching of the word. And I mentioned that in the church that I was involved in, there was a man that was relatively new believer, He had uh, probably clearly some gifts of leadership, and he came to the surface fairly quickly as people were stepping out. But he was convinced that his primary gift was service. 
And at first it didn't make any sense because he clearly seemed to have some speaking gifts, but he said, no, my gift seems to be service. I feel more comfortable behind the scenes. But whenever there was a need, he would rise to the surface and exercise the gift of service. Didn't mean to alliterate there, but and that included speaking gifts as well. At, at that time, we were very small, and I was already starting to do some work outside of the country, and I'd be gone on weeks at a time, and he would volunteer to do the teaching. He didn't think he had the gift of teaching, but uh, over time, he developed, probably, he probably had a prophetic gift as well, along with the gift of service, because he became one of the better preachers, you could say. He didn't expound, he didn't teach, but he did more service. The point I'm making is the gift of service can manifest itself in any variety of ways, not just those behind the scenes, quiet, unseen service, but it it can include even speaking gifts depending on how God, God has gifted an individual. Now, if you have a primary gift, most of it will be primarily behind the, the scenes. So if you do a word study, you find out that that word is used in ministry in general, in all kinds of contexts. I have a whole list here. It was involved in the ministry of Paul. Paul refers to his ministry using this word. So it can manifest itself in a variety of ways as an apostle, the ministry of the word, and obviously in those that we commonly associate like serving meals, financial areas, and uh, it can, uh, any, any number of ways it can be manifested. So the Greek word there, diakonia, is that common word. That's where we get the word deacon from. And the word service oftentimes is translating the word diakonia in that context. So prophecy, the one that speaks revelation in the first century, they revealed revelation as well. Service, uh, those that can serve without notice, but it can be overtly public as well. And then we have he who teaches. I won't spend a lot of time on it. I think it is more more obvious. Didasco, uh, to teach, the idea of basically expounding God's word. We don't need to go into much detail with it. My gift is probably primarily teaching, but I probably have a more prominent gift that is not on the list. My gift is the gift of eccentricity, right? No comment. Okay, the uniqueness. It's not on the list. I just want to stress, I think I have a combination of gifts that primarily manifests itself as teaching. I think I have a little bit of a discerning gift and maybe some other gifts as well. Just to stress the uniqueness of the gifts. He who exhorts. But didn't you say last week, Ray, that that uniqueness was like each of us being a snowflake? Yes. Yes. Snowflake in its traditional sense of every, there's no two alike. At least that's what they say. Not in the sense of easily melting when somebody calls you by a certain thing, a name or whatever. 
today. The new woke, woke snowflakes. Not in that sense, exactly. He who exhorts in his exhortation, in other words, get on with it. If you're an exhorter, I think this gift goes along with the prophetic gift in that they both exhort, they both motivate, but uh, the prominence of exhortation in uh, this gift, it's also that word parakaleo, and remember that's where we get the word uh, paraclete or the Holy Spirit, the ministry of comforting, but it also has the idea of coming alongside of, the idea of walking along with someone to, uh, to help them along, the so it, it, it can manifest itself not only in words, but but in service as well. And some may have the, the gift of service along with the gift of exhortation or parakaleo or the gift of, of uh, coming alongside of someone. So it includes comfort. And in some contexts, the word is translated in that context. And it also includes uh, motivation or encouragement. And I would summarize it as the gift of motivating to action. So you need the speaking gifts, and you also need the gifts that uh, encourage people to move on, to, to grow. And then he who gives with liberality, and I think the giving is not simply the uh, financial area. And just for completeness here, uh, the Greek word meta didomi, if you want to do a word study on it. I think it's giving of one's resources. It can include time. It can include uh, any number of resources. People with the gift of hospitality, they give their homes. So it can manifest itself in a, a variety of ways, not just by writing a check. Givers. And he who leads with diligence. There's another word that is used in 1 Corinthians, but I think they may be together or there may be some distinctions, the gift of leadership, and you need to be diligent, don't hold back. There's the Greek word, proistemi, proistemi, is that how you pronounce that? And I think it's leading with vision. In other words, you can envision a ministry, you can envision a direction, you can envision how things can better work out. And then you are able to take the, the resources and the people and organize them in such a way that you can uh, lead. So I summarize that, lead leadership with vision. And then he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So somebody that is hurting, they don't need somebody else that is depressed. They need somebody that can be cheerful and uh, build them up. It's related to the idea of mercy, Eliao, and they are the ones that uh, give aid to, to those that are afflicted, people that are hurting, and there's a desperate need for people with that gift in the body of Christ today. So we have the outward external speaking gifts mixed in with the behind-the-scenes serving gifts that can manifest itself in a variety of ways. We have another upfront expounding gift, those that have the speaking gift, along with those that can uh, encourage those to take that teaching and put it to action. 
Sometimes it's good to have a combination of teaching and exhortation. I probably have a limited number of exhortation. I tell people what they should do, and they do the opposite. So uh, all of you are going to sit on your spiritual gifts after today, right? Uh, We have the givers. Sometimes that's behind the scene as well. Those that are up front, kind of a combination. You notice I don't think they have any particular order. I think Paul is giving kind of the typical gifts that you can see manifested within any given body. All of them are essential, and no single pastor has them all. So when churches pay a staff or pay a pastor to do the work of the ministry, Ephesians says they are to equip the saints to do the ministry. And the saints, some of them have prophetic gifts. Some of them have serving gifts. Some of them are teachers. Some of them are motivators. Some of them are givers. They have the resources. And even if they don't, they're they're very generous. Some of them lead. Some pastors don't have the gift of leadership. Some of them have mercy. So And these are just samples, and they can come in any combination, any variety of manifestations of the gift. And we can conclude, do you know your giftedness, and are you using it? So that's our little exposition on spiritual gifts. Any comments before we go into prayer? We're going to pray for the Neufelds, I guess. But before that, anyone want to interject? I have one question. Terry, um, I kind of dominated. On the, Sorry about that. On the, use, on the use of spiritual gifts, would it only be you could use your spiritual gifts only when you're walking in the spirit? Or, i.e., when you're walking in the spirit, you would naturally use your spiritual gifts? I think both. I think it's. I think part of the abuse of spiritual gifts, I think you can exercise your gift in the flesh, and it, it, it may not be empowered. For example, I think a person that has the gift of giving, they can give, but if they're walking in the flesh, they may not have the same spiritual impact, and it may accomplish things unintended by the Holy Spirit. I can teach the Bible, and I can walk in the flesh, and it probably does not have the impact that it would if I were walking in the spirit. So I think, yes, I think you can exercise your gift and in and out of the flesh. But I think the invisible impact is going to vary uh, dependent on whether we are in the spirit or not. And again, it starts off, remember, from uh, verses one and two. If we are rightly related to the Lord, then I think the utilization of the gift is maximized. Good, Good question, though. Normandy. I also I think it might take years for especially um you know children that come to know the Lord at a young age huh. um you know it might take years for them on their um their faith walk uh you know through sanctification of finding out that they they might be a teacher or a leader or you know have the gift of pastoring or um, something like that. So that might, I mean, it, I think it has to do with just our, our faith walk in general and um, just walking with the Lord and staying in the word. And Yeah. And some of the gifts, that- some of the gifts, like you say, require development. In other words, 
as we grow, they become more useful in in the hands of God. And as we refine and become more equipped, particularly those speaking like teaching and prophecy, I would say, and exhortation, as they are developed over time, we become more effective in them. Bill, you had a comment. Mary Lee. Mary Lee. I think think that we need to recognize that discipleship is what is needed to help our gifts grow, but we also really need to realize that these are not something handed to us like someone gives you a, um, a teacup. The teacup is there and all you do is pour stuff in it and pour it out. But our gifts grow and mature as we grow and mature. And so a child can exercise a particular gift fully in his capability of, or her capability of being a 10, 12, 14-year-old, but it will be a far different exercising than when that person is 20 or 30 or even 60 or 70. The gifts grow and mature and they, they age and they develop as we use them. So it's not just being handed an object that we go out and use, but this object grows and matures as we grow and mature. Yes. Yeah. I, would agree. I, I have a, um, a quick comment on that. It's Janie. Um, yeah, I teach, I was teaching a little boy who's eight and um, he believed in the Lord when I was teaching, but we were looking at the healing, the healings that went on in the new Testament. And then one day he goes, Oh, I guess God just want, God wants you to have faith. Hmm. Yeah. And he started to do that over and over, make conclusions, you know, yeah, manifesting his gift. Yeah. Children, no may su- yeah. children may surprise you. When he would be a pa- that he would be a pastor and steered himself that way at 10 years old. So that can be helpful for a young child if, if that happens. Yes. Yeah. My, one of my six year old, um, he won't stop talking about the Bible, especially, I mean, there's the other ones, you know, they'll, they'll have questions too, but there's one child of ours in particular that said that he wants to be a teacher, pastor, some sort. And he's just asking me, how do I do that? And I, I need to, I need to listen to these sermons. I need to understand what's going on. And so, (laughs) I mean, he, that, that could be his gift. And, I'm just seeing it, you know, kind of unfold right now, his desire to learn. So yeah, it's interesting. I, I'm In fact, one of the ways, one of the ways that I uh, think you can tell if a person has uh, the gift of teaching is they, they just have a very, very strong desire to study the word and learn the word. Uh-huh. Nate had some comments. I was just going to say that I, I find it interesting that, even though there are people that are given this particular gifts that in the case of many of the things that we're still uh, all believers, there's things that all believers are supposed to do regardless of if they have the gift or not, um, you know, sharing about Christ with other people or giving or ministering, serving, uh, exhorting people that there's commands that are general to everyone. Um, even though certain people have a gift and maybe a more abundant ministry in that regard. Yeah, that's a very good point. 
In fact, I think we're called to do every one of the areas of ministry, but some of us, like Nate's pointing out, that is more their expertise, you might say, or their specialty, their spiritual expertise. Yeah, good point. Let's see who else. Somebody, David, did you have a quick comment? It's not quick. <laughs> uh <Uh-oh. laughs> Well, it is. I just wanted to say, in a lot of ways, the church has been hamstrung. The modern day church has been hamstrung in the in the expression and usage of the gifts, just because we've been taught to sit on our hands from you know a very young age. It's like being in a big gym. We're all sitting around the sides of the gym with all of the weights and all of the workout stations all available to us to increase our gifts, and we're told not to use them by the church. Yeah, not directly, but yes, yeah. Oh, and sometimes it's direct. Oh, okay. You're told if you try to you try to use your gift, you're told you're not in unity. Oh. The gift that I think is the most neglected in our era is the commandment. It's not a gift. It's a commandment to make disciples. That's something every one of us is supposed to be doing. I right. just want to add to what Nate was saying. Yes. Yeah. And we're all to be evangelists, do the work of an evangelist. Okay, Connie, we have uh, Newfells and... Father, I do just pray for Jane as she's traveling, uh, sitting in a car for extended travel will be hard. I pray that you will comfort her and strengthen her. I praise you and I thank you for your healing for Wanda and for giving Amy strength giving Wanda a trained helper there at home. Thank you so much for being with these two sweet women and uh, watch over them, bring complete healing to Wanda. Uh, I pray also for Suzanne as she's finishing up the last couple of months of her pregnancy. You will give her strength. You will give her wisdom. Uh, you will give her the energy, the health that she needs to continue to carry this little one. And we do pray for that family with all the pressures of uh, a husband working and finishing uh, college work, the pressures of uh, just the pressures of living, the stress of living with a small one in the house and all this going on. And uh, Father, we thank you for the ministry you've given Matt and Robin. A ministry of reconciliation. My golly, this world needs it everywhere. And uh, we also pray, Father, that as race class, our this body here, that we would go out as ministers of reconciliation, because reconciliation can only happen when we are rightly related to you. I thank you and I praise you. In Jesus' name. Jesus' name. Well, yeah. I hope you all have a good week. See y'all. Bye. Have a good Sunday. Bye. 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 Bye, Katie. Bye, thanks. Everybody. Bye, Nana.